Praise God. I'm glad that you're here this Sabbath. It's a very special, special Sabbath. Um, There's nothing like communion Sabbath. I don't know if you've been here the past few weeks, but if you've missed the past few weeks, two weeks ago when Leah shared her testimony, if you missed that, I'd like to invite you to go to our website and listen to that. That was a really powerful thing for me, just encouraging us to pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Last week, we talked about praying for bread, asking for Jesus to be given to us, to be able to reach others around us, to be constantly and consistently praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our lives so that we have to give, so that we have to offer to those that we come into contact with. If you missed that, again, just thankful for our audiovisual team who puts that up on the website and you can listen to the previous messages. But today, we're in for a special blessing, um, not just because of what God has in store for us from his word, but because today is communion Sabbath, and we're told that we receive a special blessing, a special connection with Christ, like we can receive on no other Sabbath. It's a high Sabbath. It's a special Sabbath when we come together to remember Jesus in an extra special way. So I hope you're expecting for Jesus to show up in your life in a special way this morning, because he promises to do that. He tells us to do this in remembrance of him, not just because he wants us to uh, think about him on, a, on this particular day, but because he wants for us to be drawn into a closer friendship, a deeper communion with him. So with that in mind, I just want to have another time of prayer. And in this time of prayer, I just want to invite you to ask Jesus to show up for you in this communion in a special way. We've gone through it. Maybe you've been through communion before. But ask him to, to make it more real to you today. To make it something extra special for you today. Where you really see Jesus in a powerful way. Let's pray together. Father, we don't begin to understand or appreciate the gift you've given us in Jesus. But today we want to appreciate that just a little bit more. So we invite you to speak to us this morning, to give us a powerful experience with Christ like we've never had before. Lord, we're asking that you minister to us through the word and also through this communion service, that it would be a very powerful and tangible experience that draws us closer to Jesus. Lord, hear our silent prayers in our hearts right now. Thank you that you promised that if we ask anything according to your will, that you hear us. And that if you hear us, that we know we have the requests which we've asked of you. And I know that drawing closer to you is something that you want for us more than we can imagine. So thank you for answering this prayer this morning, for moving in our hearts in a special way by the power of your Holy Spirit. Please speak to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. When I was younger, I began to go on a journey of trying to climb every 14,000-foot peak in Colorado. Now, Colorado has a lot of high mountains. I don't know if you've been to Colorado before, but the Rockies goes right through Colorado. And there are 54 peaks that are above the elevation of 14,000 feet. When I found this out as a child, and I was born in Denver but only lived in Colorado for a little while, 
But my family would go back in the summers on vacation to visit family, and then we'd go up to the mountains. My mom told me about these mountains, and I said, I have to climb every single one of these 14,000-foot peaks. And so we began to, to try to climb them as fast as we could, and we found out that sometimes you can climb more than one peak at a, on a day. There's ridges that go between the peaks, and there's even one set of peaks that you can climb three or four in one day. And that helps a lot when you're trying to climb 54, it condenses it in. Well, one day we found out about two specific peaks, Mount Evans and Mount Beardstadt. And as we were reading through the guidebook and we read about how you could climb Mount Evans, it's actually one you can drive up to, but that's cheating, so we had to, we had to hike it. So we're, we're planning our hike up it, and then my dad read in the guidebook. Now I have to tell you that my dad isn't one who loves to climb mountains, but he loves to read guidebooks and to tell my mom and I about climbing the mountain. So we're there and we're reading through and as he reads in it, he reads about how there is this, it's called a sawtooth ridge between Mount Evans and Mount Beardstadt. And he says, you guys could climb two mountains tomorrow. It's not, it it can't be that bad. The, The book says it's not that big a deal. So I said, oh, let me see that. And so I took the guidebook and I read it and I had been training to be a mountaineer. I wanted to climb Mount Everest. And so even though I was only 14 or 15, I thought that I was an expert mountaineer. I had the Mountaineer's Bible. I'd read all about different things about climbing mountains. And so I knew what I was doing. And as I read through about this sawtooth ridge, it was only going to be a class three. And I thought, this is no problem for my mom and I at all. And my dad said, yeah, you can go do it. My mom read it and she said, there's a big drop off there. I don't know if we should do this. I said, no, mom, don't worry about it. It'll be no problem. And just, you'll just follow my lead and we'll be perfectly fine. So that day, we hiked up and we got to the top of Mount Beardstat. And then we began to go down towards the Sawtooth Ridge. Now, a thunderstorm began to come in right about that same time. So we were trying to hurry. In Colorado, you have to get down off of the uh, peak above. If you're above the elevation where the tree line is, then you're in danger in a thunderstorm. So we needed to get down and across the ridge and up Mount Evans as fast as possible because the thunderstorm was coming in. Well, we started down onto that ridge and we're going across and I was leading my mom across. I was a ways ahead of her and I'd wait for her and oh, mom, you know, she's quite a bit older than I. She'll be okay though. Come on, mom. It's going to be fine. Well, we're going out onto the sawtooth ridge and little by little, it begins to get narrower and narrower and narrower. Pretty soon I'm walking a little slower and my mom's caught up to me. We're walking along and suddenly we come to this part where there's this big rock that goes up on one side and it even kind of overhangs us a little bit and then there's just this little ledge that you have to walk across. And on this side it drops down a good thousand feet. And so my 14-year-old, 15-year-old little heart begins to beat And I realized that I wasn't the tough mountaineer that I thought I was. As I looked down and I saw that possible fall awaiting me, I began to tremble. I began to think, I'm not, I don't think I want to do this anymore. I don't think I could go across this anymore. And so I was just standing there looking at it. And pretty soon I just felt like crying out, Mom, what do we do? And I began to to ask my mom, should we go back or what are we going to do? I'll come back to that story in a minute. Let's go to Matthew chapter 26. I had a lot of confidence about crossing 
that ridge. I had a lot of confidence that I was able to do it as, as a 14-year-old mountaineer who had been training. Sometimes we have a little too much confidence. Matthew chapter 26, we find the final scenes in the life of Jesus. And in Matthew 26 and verse 26, Jesus begins to give us the communion service uh, model that we are celebrating today. Matthew 26 and verse 26, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks, gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. This is The new covenant, Jesus said. He says, this is my blood that is shed for you for the new covenant. What does Jesus mean here when he says, this is the new covenant? What exactly is Jesus talking about? Well, for there to be a new covenant, there had to have been a old covenant. What was this old covenant? Go back with me to Exodus chapter 24. In Exodus, we find Jesus in his pre-incarnate state, coming down on Mount Sinai and giving the law to Israel. And in in Exodus chapter 24, Moses comes down, he writes all the words of the law that he's been given by God on the mountain. And he comes down and, and they sprinkle blood on people. Let's go to actually verse 25. I'm mean, sorry, verse 5 of, of Exodus 24. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people and they said this. Okay, so he's been given all of these laws. He's been given the Ten Commandments. He's been giving them all these instructions by God. These Things that that God had promised, if you follow these things, you will live. God has given them all these things. And so the Israelites, when they hear these things, look at their response. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. Verse 8, and Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. This is what we find to be the old covenant. It's given as the law from heaven. Now, there was nothing wrong with the law. The law was good. It says that in Psalms 119, that the law was good and that the law was holy. Paul says that in Romans. The law was a good thing, but what is the problem in this whole situation, this whole agreement that takes place? The problem is what the people said. The people said, Oh yes, we can do this. We can keep this law. We are able to be obedient. We can follow this. It's no problem. We'll do this. And so, as they would do in their covenant treaties, they sprinkle the blood representing that if the people decide to violate this, that they're going to be cut off from God, that they're going to die. So what happens If you read on, Moses goes up into the mountain again and he receives instructions for building the sanctuary that God may dwell among them. And while Moses is on the mountain, 
He's only gone for 40 days and 40 nights up there on the mountain. But by the time he's coming down from the mountain, Joshua says, what's that noise that I hear down in the camp? What's going on down there in the camp? And God had told Moses that down in the camp, the children of Israel had built an idol. And he gets down to the camp and there they are. They've already built an idol. They've built the golden calf. They've already broken the covenant. They've already participated in idolatry. They've already forgotten about the God who led them through the Red Sea, the God who had done all these incredible things for them. Their promises had been broken so quickly. And so what does Moses do? He takes those tablets of stone and he breaks them, representing that the covenant had been broken. The old covenant, because the people said, we can do it. We can keep the law. We're able to do it. And yet they failed. Their promises were broken. They had overconfidence. So Jesus, going back to Matthew chapter 26, Jesus at the Lord's Supper, he he gives them this cup and he says, this is the cup, my blood, shed for you of the new covenant which is given for the remission, the taking away, the forgiveness of sin. So he says, here I'm giving you the cup of the new covenant. So what's different about this covenant? It's in this covenant that we look to Jesus and to Jesus only. That we say, we're going to obey only in Jesus' strength. We're not going to stand like the Israelites and say, we can do it. We're going to be fine. We're going to be able to follow all of your ways, God. Because we recognize that's the old covenant way of doing things. That's the way that the Israelites attempted to follow God and they failed miserably. It doesn't work out so well. But the disciples don't get it. How do I know that? If you read here, right after Jesus gives them this blood of the new covenant saying, you know, my life in in the Bible, in Leviticus, it says that the blood, the life is in the blood. So in giving them his blood, he's saying, I'm giving you my life. I'm giving you my righteousness. I'm giving you my works of obedience so that you can live my life. I want for you to have my life infused into you, to give you a transfusion of life. But the disciples don't get it. Because you read on in Matthew 26, in verse 30, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus tries to warn them of what's coming in verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd of the sheep and the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Now look at Peter's response. Peter, the one who was so bold when Jesus was walking on water saying, tell me to come after you and let me, let me walk on water too. Or any time, he was the first one to speak up. Well, Peter doesn't fail us here. And in verse 33, he says, Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Peter says, I can do this. I've got this. It's it's no problem, Jesus. I will not fail you. I will stand for you tonight. No matter how difficult this is, no matter what happens, Jesus, I will go with you. I'm not going to stumble. Jesus answers him in verse 34 and said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. you imagine what that would do to your heart? To hear Jesus, who you know 
knows the future to say that. And yet, look at Peter's response. Peter doesn't take that. He goes on to say this in verse 35. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Now, sometimes we give Peter a bad rap. Say, what was he thinking? Why, why did he make these kind of promises? But I believe Peter did this out of the goodness of his heart. He honestly believed that he wanted to do whatever it took for Jesus. He wanted to, to go to the point of dying for Jesus. He was willing to go the distance for Jesus. But he didn't recognize his own heart. He didn't recognize his own sinful tendencies. He didn't recognize how desperately he needed a Savior. It's very dangerous to be overconfident. It's really dangerous to think that we have it all under control. To think that that we're doing fine, that we're coasting along in our Christian journey, that it's all going to be okay. And to not be clinging to Jesus. To not be desperately seeking for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because without Jesus' blood, without that new covenant experience of relying on Jesus and Jesus alone to give us His righteousness, we can never keep from stumbling. On our own, that's an old covenant experience that we've seen was blown again and again by the Israelites. When they tried to trust in themselves, they kept going back to foolish idols. They kept going back to their old ways and they kept failing God again and again. I don't want that to happen in my life. How can I avoid falling? I want to be able to stand for Jesus. I want to be able to come. We're living in amazing times. Just this past week in the news, many different things happening that could have a profound impact on our religious freedom here in America. Are we ready to stand for Jesus? even when we're not able to freely worship like we are today? Are we willing to stand for Jesus in courts of law when it comes to the point of needing to stand? Are we ready to stand for Jesus? I want to say today, yes, I am ready to stand, but I don't want to be like Peter. I don't want to say I'm able to stand and then recognize that I really didn't have that strength that I thought that I had. How do I avoid the mistake that Peter made? How do I ensure that I really am going to be able to stand? Well, as we got to that ridge and we were trying to go across, I, I invited my mom to, to just follow me and she could see how it would be done. Well, as I began to edge across and that, that rock was over and it was a long drop off there, I just kept looking down and pretty soon I was just like, Mom, we can't do it anymore. We just got to go back. What are we going to do? And my mom said, Zach, Zach, just calm down. Just calm down. Zach, stop looking at the drop-off. Stop looking down that cliff. Stop looking at the precipice. Instead, just fix your eyes on where you're headed. Look straight across the ridge. Don't look down and just look across. I said, okay, mom, if you say so. 14 years so far and you haven't been wrong. Okay, I'm going to fix my eyes. And as I began to look across the ridge and began to edge across, no longer looking at that massive drop-off, it began to not be so bad. I said, oh, it's, come on, Mom, it's going to be fine. <laughs> Let's go. And we made it across the ridge. We didn't make it across before the thunderstorms were coming, so we ended up having to go down early. But we made it safely across. And we made it across based on what our eyes were fixed on. 
As we look in this story, we see that this was the key for Peter. Peter was fixed on his own strength. He was fixed on what he was able to do. He was thinking about how he could stand for Jesus and what he was going to do. But Jesus was trying to give him an entirely different picture. If you go on and you read it in verse 36, Jesus tries to save Peter from this terrible fall. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Jesus wanted for the disciples to have the same experience that he was about to have of connecting with the Father, of going to God in prayer and of seeking strength for what was to come to them. Stay here and watch with me. Maybe Jesus is actually kind of saying here, stay here and watch what I'm about to do. If you observe how I am going to deal with this situation, it will give you strength to stand when you are facing a trial. Verse 38, then he said to them, sorry, verse 39, then he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed saying, oh my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You see, Jesus knew the key. Jesus represented to us as he came and he took full humanity upon himself. He represented to us how the victory can be gained. And that is by us saying, God, I don't have what it takes. Not my will, but your will be done. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the know-how. I need for your will to be done in this situation. But then in verse 40, Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, what could you not watch with me for one hour? Could you not keep watch with me? Couldn't you enter into the same experience with me, Peter? I'm going to be able to stand through this, Peter. Why don't you enter into the same experience of watching and praying? 41, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing. Peter, you have good intentions. You want to do the right thing. You're headed in the right direction, but the flesh is weak. And so Peter, you need to be watching. You need to be watching and praying so that you don't enter into temptation. You know, it's all too easy for us to just get into the motions of doing things, of coming to church, sitting in the pew, going about our Christian walk, and forgetting that we are in an epic battle, that if we don't cling to Jesus with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our souls, that we too are in danger of falling. I love what it says in Testimonies, Volume 2, page 204. It talks about the disciples' experience and what they could have had says, they lost much by thus sleeping. Our Savior designed to fortify them for the severe test of their faith to which they would soon be subjected. 
See, in this experience, Jesus asked them to watch and pray so that they could have that strength that would see them through this intense trial that they were going to go through. Jesus wanted to fortify them. He wanted to give them the strength. If they had spent that mournful period in watching with a dear Savior and in prayer to God, Peter would not have been left to his own feeble strength to deny his Lord in the time of trial. Peter could have stood if he had been willing to watch and pray. Peter could have stood if he had followed Jesus' example and saying, God, not my will, but your will be done. But instead, Peter was standing up as a personal uh, savior. He was standing up saying, I can do this. I'm going to stand for you, Jesus. I will not deny you. And what did he do? He denied Jesus goes on to say, by these sleeping disciples is represented a sleeping church when the day of God's visitation is near. It is a time of clouds and thick darkness when to be found asleep is most perilous. We're living in perilous times. We're living in times when the world around us is in chaos, when so much is going on, and yet it is easy for us just to slip into sleep. To feel like we've got it. To feel like, well, I've been a Christian most of my life, and, or maybe it hasn't been that long, but I'm kind of getting in the flow of things. It's kind of, and we begin to sleep, like Leah talked about a couple weeks ago. And we realize, and hopefully we realize, that we're just sleepwalking. We need to wake up. We need to watch as Jesus watched. We need to pray as Jesus prayed. Father, not my will but your will be done. Jesus said that the flesh is willing, but the, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It reminds me of Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, it tells us in verse 19, Galatians chapter 5, actually let's go to verse 17. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. There is this struggle, this tension that is going on in each and every one of our lives between the flesh and the spirit going back and forth. And Jesus knows that there's this tendency in us. And that's why he tells us to watch and pray. The spirit lusts against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Here, Paul goes on to tell us the difference between the two. He tells us about the fruits of the flesh, which are adulteries and envies and lusts and jealousies and all these different things. And then he goes on to tell us the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See, these are the things that God wants to work in us, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, as we watch in our lives. And so in my life, when I'm watching, what am I watching for? First of all, I'm fixing my eyes on Jesus. If my eyes are fixed on Jesus, just like when I'm going across that ridge, I know that I can make it across. If I'm focused on myself, if I'm focused on stumbling, if I'm focused on anything but Jesus, I'm going to be scared. I'm not going to be able to make it through. But if my eyes are fixed on Jesus... I'm going to be able to make it through. And in my own life, I can begin to watch and say, as I'm fixing my eyes on Jesus, am I 
representing Jesus' character? Is his life really flowing in me? Am I having that new covenant experience where his life is becoming my life and I really am becoming more loving? I really am becoming more joyful. I really do have more peace and more kindness, more gentleness in my life. And as those things begin to happen in my life, I know that Christ is working in me. But if I'm looking at my life, and my life is headed in a different direction than that, then I need to watch and pray. I need to recognize my desperate need for Jesus to convert my heart. On a daily basis, I have to go to the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, I don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes to stand today, but you do. And would you give me your strength? Would you give me your life today? In Heavenly Places, page 279, it says, Watch against the stealthy approach of the enemy. Watch against old habits and natural inclinations, lest they assert themselves. Force them back and watch. Peter himself later on goes on to say in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Peter learned his lesson later on. And Peter tells us to be sober, to be vigilant, the exact same word to watch in Greek. He says, watch. Peter wished that he had watched in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so when he writes his letter, his general epistle, he says, watch, be sober, be vigilant, because the enemy is coming. Watch what happens in your life. Watch Jesus and watch for those things to take place in your life. Watch the thoughts, watch the plans, lest they become self-centered. Watch over the souls that Christ has purchased with his own blood. Watch for opportunities to do them good. A great crisis is just before us. To meet its trials and temptations and to perform its duties will require persevering faith. But we may triumph gloriously. Not one watching, praying, believing soul will be ensnared by the enemy. Friends, you don't have to be afraid of all that's going on in the world today. If you fix your eyes on Jesus... If you have your focus totally on Jesus, if you're saying, I don't have what it takes, I don't have the strength to stand in these times, but Jesus does. He is an all-sufficient Savior. He has what it takes, and I believe that I can stand in His strength. Then you don't have to be afraid. You can know that you will stand when you watch and pray. So today, as we celebrate the communion together, I invite you to Watch Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus as we have the time of the ordinance of humility where we go and we wash each other's feet. It's a reminder of Jesus and his attitude of service. That the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then as we come back and we take of the bread and we take of the grape juice, we remember that it's Christ's life. His body that was broken for us. His blood that was spilled for us. It is that and that alone which will give us the strength to stand. It is that and that alone which gives us the strength to obey. Let's not be like the Israelites who said, we can do it. Let's not be like Peter who said, we will stand. But let's be the ones who say, we will stand in Christ's strength and Christ's strength alone. So I invite you as we celebrate communion this morning together to remember Christ, to remember what he has done for us, to fix your eyes on him. As we go through this celebration together, it is a special time where we really can experience 
Christ working in our hearts more than at any other time. Thank you for being here this Sabbath. I know that it's going to be a powerful and meaningful experience for you as you seek him diligently. Hebrews 11.6 says he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Jesus, thank you so much for the example you've given us, the prayer that you prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Thank you for being willing to, to pray that prayer. We only have salvation because of what you were willing to do. Help us as we go through this experience this morning to be touched in a fresh way by the life that you have offered to us. Lord, give us a desire to live that same life. Please bless us as we participate in the ordinance of humility and communion. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.